Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. Today I'm talking to the London-based artist William Farr. Originally from Huddersfield, at the age of 20 he had his first exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Santiago in Chile and has since gone on to create temporary installations for the Tate Modern, Liberty of London and for the fashion designer Charles Jeffrey. He spoke to me about his work which features materials he finds around the city and what it's like being part of London's young creative scene. Hi, William Farr. Hello. Welcome. Hi. Hi. It's nice to be here. <laughs> here at your studio. Yeah, well, yeah, but House? in the Home? realm of our cabinet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We have to yeah. imagine the cabinet. House um, and studio are sort of still live and work in the same place, which uh, has its benefits. And you know, How long have you been here? Uh, only six months. I moved from my studio in London Bridge near the Matches offices not that long ago, but... Um, yeah, no, like it's I'm in Highbury and Islington now by Canterbury Square, which is nice. It's a bit more, it's a bit less central, but I do love being in central because obviously London's just like exciting and fun, you know. Why, why did you choose this area? It chose me. I feel like things always choose me, not the other way around. <laughs> um, it came about in a funny way, but um, yeah, I feel like it's kind of what I needed at this point, yeah you know I love to work I love to you know run a business that's creative and be able to you know make that my living if sort of thing yeah so I, I started to I landed a job at the Olympics got altering costumes and we were in Deptford by the docks and we had a little like port cabin I was working not for the British team but for this for the Brazilians with this um, Italian film production company and um, they were hilarious it was like so Italian and so eccentric yeah, and yeah, we were sort of all crammed in this really hot portal cabin in summer, ramming these costumes under like sewing machines. And you know, I was, I worked at Medium Kirchhoff and I did a lot of sewing in a way, but I've always been a very expressive person in whatever I do, and I don't think it necessarily suited the, the level of accuracy you need in pattern cutting and sewing, you know. Why, what made you decide that? Being a fashion designer wasn't for you and to go down the path of creating things like you do now instead? It was just really something I couldn't ignore. Like, you know, when I was in... Sorry, like... Um, when I was in fashion college, I was always much more interested in the twirling and the, you know, being a, using, fab, using cardboard to kind of construct much more sculptural things that I found it hard to translate into clothing and it didn't really work in something wearable and I'd always had a huge interest in spaces you know I wanted to be an architect and I wanted to be a photographer when I was younger and I sort of cycled through all these different creative things and explored all of them and researched all of them from a really you know from a really young age um, and yeah I think that you know making making artwork is something that I is is what keeps like keeps my child alive like it keeps me my internal being alive and awake you know and i think that's the most important thing as a creative that you don't let that slip away somehow but yeah 
so this podcast is all about the things that you find inspiring or that have some meaning to you in your life what would you put in there okay well it's obviously been it's quite a difficult thing to you know especially having you know just to choose just a few um it you know works both ways in a way it's like almost like you don't want to put anything in there because it seems so definite but then when you you know putting yeah but anyway I won't go into that too much <laughs> yeah. my me sat up with my boyfriend last night on the sofa going uh, uh like that doesn't work um I think the first one that I came up with that felt right was something I hadn't thought about in a while actually and it was sort of one of my most treasured possessions which seemed fitting obviously and something physical um, it's like a book that I found in my grandparents' house, and it's uh, Ruskin's Lecture on Art, which actually is pretty outdated when you read it, but um, my great-grandma had read it in 1904, and she'd signed it in the front LCK read, she was called. <laughs> it was one of those first moments when I was younger where I realised that um, I had some sort of creative history in my family, and, you know, I come from quite an academic family on my dad's side, and they just were surrounded by old books and I felt like maybe that didn't, you know, translate to me, but then my dad's this very creative person, but not particularly aesthetic or like he, d- he just makes and makes in this kind of quite, also quite eccentric or weird way. That I think, I guess he must think what he makes is beautiful and everything's objective, but you're not likely to like your own dad's work, are you, really? No. Just wouldn't no. be weird if you did. No, yeah. yeah. So the book, how did you come across it? Was it just on the bookshelf at home? Yeah, it was just, no, my grandparents, they had a house um, on M. Scott Road in between Leamington Spa and Warwick. Um, my granddad was the county archivist for Warwickshire. My grandma lectured at Warwick University. Um, they both sort of studied at Oxford and Cambridge. Um, and they, you know, they were, they were like translating Latin and texts and stuff and, Roman text and they sort of knew everything. I remember me and my brother once spent a day trying to find the oldest book in the house. <laughs> we thought we'd got it. It was like 1702 or something. And we were like, right, well, this must be it. We showed it to my granddad who was like, he used to make this really sort of, I remember how much it irritated my dad. I quite liked it. It was, I can't do anything, but it was like this, hmm, <laughs> like noise. <laughs> like he'd just sit there, like look up from his book and be like, hmm. <laughs> and he'd be like, I don't know, and then he was like, that's definitely not the oldest, um, and pulled out some ancient text, I don't know what the hell it was, but yeah, um, but I guess it, they had lots of pieces, they, they had a big interest in art and culture, but it was, it was kind of like old cathedrals and flying buttresses on, you know, the side of a, some old thing in France, you know, whatever. I think my dad got dragged around in an old Morris Minor, um, going around cathedral after cathedral after, you know, whatever church, I don't know what they're even called. It's not of any... I like historical architecture. I don't think religious architecture in Christianity is my favourite subject, personally. So did you hang out a lot with them when you were growing up? I loved my... Yeah, I loved my grandparents on that side of the family. They were definitely... You know, the feeling of space in their house was something that really, you know, affected me and informed me the feeling of history and the layers of their life and how everything was kept and exploring the attic and finding all these old letters and just all of this, the huge cherry tree in the garden and the, the smell of the house and, you know, even just going down into the... Uh, you know the the cellar that was, had been flooded, and it wasn't like a room or anything. It was, you know, it was just like a dirt floor. And, but these all these like rotting pieces of furniture and all of that decay. You know, is something that really um, 
I just found it to be so inspiring and you know my grandma's apple strudel and cooking baking cakes you know she was the one that taught me to bake really and you know my dad still cooks her bakes her fruit um fruit cake which you know a bit of butter on there it's lovely I love a passed down recipe yeah me too my dad makes the best bread um and we grew up you know with fresh bread every week which I think that 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 those kind of things are the things that I'm really fortunate about to have had in my childhood so you said your dad was always making things. What yeah. was he making? Well, it started out, he, he worked as a mechanic and he had a huge interest in making things that move. And, make, you know, he made his first motorbike with his brother. My uncle was a, a Formula One mechanic at one point in the 80s. And they made a, you know, they, I think they got an old lawnmower engine and sort of somehow welded it onto um a frame that they'd knocked together and you know my, my dad made us used to make all sorts of stuff like he'd show he'd show us how to make a gun out of a biro and a party popper if you sort of wrap like if you make a metal pellet of course you're talking, if you make a metal pellet that fits the biro perfectly and the small tip end of the biro if you put the party popper the thing that pops if you put the string through and you wrap the pen if you don't make sure you wrap the pen in loads of sellotape if you're going to do this because otherwise the pen explodes and put it in a vice don't you know like do it in your hand because you'll definitely hurt your hand but the compression uh once you pull the pipe out shoot we got through about like five <laughs> five cardboard boxes you could really do some damage with that you know whether it was tree houses or campfires or hoisting my brother up a tree to um you know to make a the highest tree swing we could make you know it was like so, a, a go-kart with pram wheels on that you steer with a piece of string that just went obscenely fast for to give to like you know, we were really young at the time, and we always <laughs> fell off somehow. Or fell, my brother fell out of the treehouse. I crushed my little finger in a metal gate. Like I don't know. It was yeah. So do you, was your dad teaching you all these practical things? Or was well, I always felt really left out because it was like my, my big. I've got four brothers. My two big brothers um, were like so much more practical. You know, they're straight, and I was like. I don't know. We all thought my brother was the gay one, but then it turned out it was me. I didn't really know what it was. <laughs> but um, no, it turned out it was me in the end. But, no, but I was always the one that was sort of pottering around, thinking much more, you know, about the sort of aesthetics as well of the situation. Like I just would, I'd be the one decorating the gypsy hut we built, or I'd be the one that was sort of gathering the little elements that, I don't know. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I felt left out and I'm not, I don't view myself as the most practical of people, which to most people must seem a bit like funny to say, because I, I make things, but I don't, I don't, I'm not very good at making things that are strong. Like I, I love it when something that I make falls apart. So often in a, in a job that I've done, you'll see halfway through, like something kind of fall down. <laughs> is that part of, is that part of this process though? Um, I did a podcast on this series recently with um, the artist Katharina Grosser and she was talking about how I she likes... I her work. Yeah. Isn't and she amazing? I just followed her on Instagram. I'd seen her work and I didn't realise that she had an Instagram. And it's funny, I just referenced her in a... In a oh, really? Job. No, just in a commercial a commercial job that we're actually I've got assistants upstairs probably could be right now trying to make some fabric like this <laughs> we don't tell her that I'll mention. I won't mention it okay. um, but yeah she was talking about those buildings I was asking about those buildings that she spray painted on yeah. 
after Hurricane Katrina. Oh, and, yeah. Um, and she was saying how... Because the buildings got destroyed after she painted them eventually. Mm. But she's... And I was like, do you mind that this amazing piece mm. of work you created got destroyed? But, that, but for her, the, it's part of the... It's part of the artwork, the fact yeah. that it is transient and yeah. that it eventually yeah. sort of... It's a huge part of my work. Um, you know, I think that artists historically have often been obsessed with the idea of leaving this legacy. With life expect- when life expectancy was much shorter, uh, you know, like there's all these Victor- Victorian kind of ideas of momentum mori and, you know, and I think that the idea of creating things of permanence was of much more interest, whereas we live in this transient world now where everything's just changing at such, uh, it's speeding up, you know, and it's at this faster and faster rate. And I do think that our civilization or who knows, the, I think the Western civilization or our civilization has peaked now and is at a stage, stage of decomposition. And that, that makes it such an incredibly beautiful and exciting time to live, especially if it's what you're a fan of. Yeah. If it's what you love to watch things fall apart, then now's your time. But um, no, I, I guess, yeah, I, I, I find it hard to live with the things that I'm left with as much as... You know, the, perm- the idea of permanence and... Yeah, well, I guess, you know, the problem is that I don't... Uh, it's... I, I, well, I would put in my cabinet uh, the idea of decomposition or d- decay because without it, I'd be absolutely lost, you know? I think it's something that um, is just so important in the world around us to appreciate and to embrace and, and it, it's... The, it's all, probably the most unspoken, feared thing that we have, in a way. I guess people talk a lot about ageing and, oh, I'm going to age. And, you know, but it's like, to have the, to the privilege to age, to decay, to have the ability, the fact that we can die, the fact that um, we can experience things at their peak and then they pass their peak which means that, you know, you have that moment that, yeah. that creates memories. Yeah, it's like um, Philip Roth, I read a quote from him the other day that I really liked, was like, the meaning of life is that it ends. Yeah, yeah, well, think, exactly. You know, that, how yeah. does the, that feed into the work you do? Well, it, it, it's a, it's a, for me, it's a battle constantly because I, a part of me says, oh, make something permanent and I've got to let people in and I want people to be involved and experience the work. But also, you know, I, I, love destru- I love destroying my own work. I love the moment when it's done and I've caught the image, you know, because really the documentation of my work is often in the images. I, I want people to experience it more. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it's a bit, there's a bit of control in there of trying to capture just the right angle and just the right moment so that people see exactly the thing that I want them to um, yeah, but... Is there a part of that as well with the found materials that you work with? Yeah, well, you never know what you're going to find. Where do and you go to find this stuff? I just think I'm very fortunate, which to say that... To talk about in the context of finding rubbish, but I always just seem to find exactly what I need. It's something I learned off my ex, Tony, is if you look, you will find. And if you keep your eyes open... And I, I often send people out looking for rubbish for me, and you do see that some people can just see it around them. And, you know, walking around the city, you, you know, whether you sort of have to knock on a door and ask, like, or whatever, whatever it might be, like, it's... Like, it, what, what, you mean you actually go to, where do you go and knock, where do you go and ask? 
Well, like say there's something lying about in someone's garden or... Oh, I see. I don't know. Give you me know, an example. They might not warn, like, I'm imagining or, a whole army of foragers out there. Well, sometimes I do. If I've got yeah. to make a like larger scale piece, you know, it's like... I, I think. Give I did, me an example of a piece. I did one uh, at the end of last year. Um, I used a space in Goldsmiths University and I had sort of some students collecting for about a week for it and just building up a big pile of rubbish. And then we what just... What was the brief? Oh, it's just personally led work. Like, most of the work I do is personally led. I found that I had to take my work back to a place of, uh, you know, a year ago I'd been working um, in the, primarily in the fashion industry for about four or five years. And um, I, I just, I was losing myself within it. And I just realized, like, I have to stop all this now and just try and find a place of warmth and safety from what, to realize what I want within it and where am I within it. And so I just started to do personally led projects constantly and just putting them out there, you know, putting them on Instagram or social media, um, showing them to people. And the reaction has been so different and so interesting because people find it such a more emotive thing to look at. And, you know, it's not cool. um, And I don't really care for things being like cool particularly because it's like seems like something a really base level of thing to aim for but it's like I just really want to try and build this language and for people to sort of experience that and to see more layers in it than just the surface like you know sometimes people are like oh you're a flower artist and it's like well actually that's just one part of a wider palette of materials I use and often the pieces I make don't even have flowers in but it's just easy to put someone in that box you know yeah what are the materials that you're using well wire comes into it a lot wire simply because it symbolizes connections and I really strongly believe that there's so many levels of energy that we don't yet we can't yet comprehend you know we discovered electricity which is such an of silly way thing to think you know like human discoveries discovering electricity obviously electricity is there it's been all around us the Chinese ancient Chinese knew about electricity like even in our west western thing of like oh wait the white man discovered this now <laughs> like the white man discovered America yay um but no and it, I, I'm just trying to describe something that exists at a molecular level at the, at the biggest scale at the sort of universal level and and it exists between people of connection of objects and connection of beings and their emotions and you know and so I guess wires for me it has this industrial element it has we're surrounded by wires wires like tree roots connect everything you know and apparently tree tree, tree roots are proven to um, communicate between each other now you know which is just yeah. like yeah it's amazing and it, it's so exciting and it's so believable because you know it's, it's weird how it's taken us so long to think maybe animals are sentient like us you know and then I, I heard that they're trying to break down dolphin language and they might have nailed it in five years time which I, I can't wait so you can have a chat with a dolphin yeah. you know? <laughs> I do think in some ways that the art of conversation is is being lost like humans are becoming so visual I, I was I was reading about the fact that you know language is transforming into being like speech now with you know how we type and text all the time so they're finding more and more ways that language is just turning into speech whereas language used to have its own way it does and still does but it used to have think about how many words and the way that people play with language I'm terrible with language so I'm not the person to talk about this at all because I'm like really dyslexic I can't express myself uh, 
in work, I find, well, I not can't, there's no can't, but I find it very difficult to... Did you go to school in Huddersfield? That's yeah, where you, that's where like you grew up. Right? a state school in Huddersfield, which, you know, had its challenges. You know, working class kids that were... My village was half a council estate and half were, what were the meant to be the better houses, which in London terms, like, doesn't even come anywhere near middle class, you know. I don't think, anyway, but... Like my dad's house, the end of the garden is a, is a nine-story Victorian yarn spinning mill that's still working, and uh, the edge, the other side of our garden is their car park with uh, with forklift trucks loading things all day. And you, there's an intercom like Miss Finn, come to <laughs> to reception or whatever. You know, we sat there. I remember we once made a bonfire that was so big we set their fence on fire and got done for it. It was really good. But we used to steal their big, they had these big like um, barrel things and we'd roll them into our garden and then burn them. Um, and yeah, but going to school and you know, and my mum giving me like a hippie bowl cut, I had a mullet for quite a few years, which is, I remember once I like went through all the family pictures and cut me out and the mullet <laughs> off. <laughs> so like the little mullet showing, which I think I destroyed most of the evidence of my, in, but see, like me with destruction, like, yeah. you know, I collect things incessantly and then just throw them away or give them away. And then I, and sometimes I like, I, I sort of punish myself for it. And then I've had to learn to accept it because it's just such a part of, I can't, I used to sit behind the sofa and um, my dad had like a waste paper basket of A4 white paper and I'd just sit there and took myself behind the sofa and just cut it up into small pieces, just like randomly sized small pieces for some reason. I don't know why, but... And were you, your mum was a poet? Well, she wasn't when I was growing up. She wasn't when I was growing up. She was uh, a full-time mum, I guess. Yeah, four kids. With four kids, yeah. Pretty big job. Uh, and then she went to do her MA um, at the age of 40... 42. Um, she's now just finishing her PhD um, and yeah, she's managed to get a few books published and you know, taught and uh, just like readings. She does poetry and short stories, um, which is really great. I don't know how these things come out of her imagination, to be honest. Some of the stuff she writes about, I'm like, she just wrote a fantasy novel about some other world and I was reading it and I was thinking like, you're nuts. Like, and I thought it was me. <laughs> and then I look at but her mum is really nuts. Like, in the most low-key way. Because they live in, like, uh, Devon in a semi-detached house. And it's sort of this, like, flower-potting, you know, what would have been 2.5 kids, like, dream of suburbia. But she's completely insane and detached from reality. And, but she loves flowers. I think this might be where I got it from. I went down for their diamond wedding anniversary a, about a month ago, and we got talking about flowers and flower types. And she worked, she used to win um, the prizes sometimes at the Women's Institute flower competitions, which I thought was really cute. But I showed her some of my work, and she was like. Oh, well, <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> I can arrange normally. Like, I can do, like, your standard bunches. Did you learn that from her? No, I learned that working at the florist at Borough Market in London Bridge, because when I first got my uh, studio on Southwark Street, um, I just... I had this idea that I wanted to make a cloud out of flower petals. I went in the florist, and I was like, have you got any old flowers? And... Um, what someone that has became one of my closest friends was working there, Dinah, who's Latvian. Latvians have a great love for nature. I happen to have three Latvian friends, which there isn't that many of them to have as friends, so it worked out. 
It's quite nice. I feel like there's a certain connection between Latvia and Yorkshire. I don't know why. It's the maybe the nature or something, and the honesty, yeah. the sort of straight speaking thing. Um, yeah, and so she started to give me all these flowers, and she'd like steal them from the bins at the market or the ones that left over from the shop, and she'd like leave them in bin bags outside the studio, and I'd go and collect them, or I'd go up and get them, and. And I sort of like just like to dry them in different ways and see, you know, some flowers don't dry, like tulips just go mouldy and just quite nice in itself. And uh, and just exploring it and hanging them from the ceiling and my, it was just like such a mess and it was this ever-evolving space. It's a project actually that I've never really shown anyone because it was quite dark and very, it was quite a dark period in my life and I was thinking about death a lot and, and destruction and I wasn't really thinking about aesthetics why um, was it what were you going with why was it a dark period well I was just going through a lot uh, personally and um, it was a really difficult time uh, you know I was um, just yeah I was just struggling with myself and I guess it's something that I hit a real rock bottom with about two and a half years ago after I've had men, like mental health issues from about the age of 12 or 13 um, and you know that that's something that's been really difficult to deal with um, and I guess you know as much as there's a lot of wonderful things about the way that I grew up it was very challenging I was, I was left to be very very independent from a very young age um, which obviously thrust me out into the world and all of the things that the world holds which when you're a child and you're naive and you don't necessarily know what you're, you, you know, how to defend yourself or how to look after yourself or um, left me in some quite vulnerable situations and that that can leave a certain amount of trauma uh, that carries through into adulthood and, you know, I, I developed addiction issues and, you know, different mental health sort of diagnoses and stuff which, you know, I've overcame and I am... Um, but you still... Creating stuff through these Always, periods. but it was so much more Do you ever stunted. look back at it now and does it bring, take you back to that time? Yeah, yeah, I don't, I try not to look back too much nowadays. I think when you come out of the other end of something like that, you're just so thankful to be alive and to have each day. And I think, I didn't ever think I'd get to this now and I worked so hard to get here. Because um, it was sink or swim, like I wasn't going to get out of that without putting the work in and I what, what was it that was what was it that helped you come out of it so many things you know I didn't there was no one thing I had to just try absolutely everything I could different kinds of therapy um you know like acupuncture people um making things was a big part of it which kept me going you know I think that the being able to make things just gave that glint of light I, I remember when I was really young it was art that saved me. It was the idea that there's something more out there um, and something that's more... You know, getting sober, I think, has been a huge part of it as well. I think that, you know, when you're drinking and using and you're... Um, yeah, and you're uh, not well, it doesn't... It really doesn't help. This is the kind of things I think of which I really shouldn't. Do you, I was going to say... Let's before, talk about seeing more positive. Yeah, let's get back to your... I've been let's quite get, positive. Let's get back to your cabinet. <laughs> what else would you... What else goes in there? Uh, joy. (laughs) I was going to ask you now about, since you've been in London and the kind of work you've been doing and some of the commercial work. Yeah. 
But yeah, no, I thought I've really enjoyed like Matty Bovan was a great person to work with. Yeah. That was a more separate. What did you do with him? Thing. Well, I did his show at the Tate Modern, and we filled one of the tanks. Oh, I made this sort of big set from cardboard that was like a dystopian cityscape, and the idea of the initial concept of the collection was um, to combine these sort of medieval and really naive elements with this sort of idea of a future corporate, um, yeah, like, megaliths and a huge city. And so I just sort of developed that idea, you know, we, we came with the idea together and I developed that idea. And it was really good. I, I really, really enjoyed working on that. It was, it went so smoothly. It's one of those things, no, no all-nighter, no kind of big old stress. Everyone enjoyed working on it. And it's when projects go like that, it's... Do you think you put... A- a, a, a photo, a photo of that into the cabinet as a memento. <laughs> yeah, or I could it. put one of the little houses that there we made go. if the cabinet's big enough. Or I could make a mini one. But go. houses is another continuing theme. I made them again actually recently for a project that I was doing, um, and I want to develop like more, you know, this cityscapes thing more in bigger, bigger contexts and stuff. And you know, with the homes project, obviously we made houses and I made houses and lived in them over three months. In, well, you should explain more about that. Yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, the project I did in 2012, I was, I was 20 at the time, uh, with my ex-partner Tony Hornicker, who runs a restaurant called The Pale Blue Door in London, and he works as a set designer as well, and um, he's an artist, and uh, he had a restaurant in Santiago at the time, in Chile, and we decided, we'd both thought of the idea before before meeting, separately which was what was really funny about it i was studying fashion class hating it and i said to my friend mimi i only had two friends with the two chinese students mimi and philip and we used to just sit smoking fags and bitching about everything in life um and yeah and i turned around to mimi and i said i can't do this i want to go and live in tree houses i want to get so far away from anyone and there's there's very few places in the world that's further away from civilization than the south of Chile, like it's completely desolate. And so, yeah, I met Tony, he was doing the set for the menswear show, the first menswear show for Medium Kirchhoff, and I saw his windows. He was making a set from old doors and windows. It's an ongoing theme with his work. And I was like, oh, I like your windows. Where'd you get them from? He's like, reclamation yard in Essex, I'll take you one day. And that was literally the two sentences we said to each other. And then I was working at Dawson Superstore at the time uh, as a bartender and my friend Olivia took me back to where she was staying and I walked into this house and I thought, like, fuck me, this is exactly, like, this is me. I was like, this is me, it reminded me of my grandparents, it reminded me of, I used to, like, decorate my room and create, like, all these installations in my bedroom when I was a kid and, you know, I don't know if you've seen Tony's work, but it's very intense and... Whoa, so intense that it something just fell off yeah, the wall. Yeah, that intense that it made the picture fall off the wall. Um, yeah, and so I just fell in love with the place, but without knowing it was his house. And then she sort of told me it was his house, and then I managed to put two and two together that he was the guy that I met. And I then asked him for a job in his... I was asking him, like, have you got any work for me? You've got what I can do. And he said... He, he was like, oh, no, no, I don't know, I haven't really got anything on, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. And then he emailed me, and then on Facebook a few months later, I think I followed it up, I'm terrible, I'm like a, like, you can't get rid of me once I want it. <laughs> if I really, really want it, I'm just like, yeah. But 
And he said, yeah, come down, come tomorrow and uh, you can dishwash at the restaurant. And he was paying like 120 quid for about four hours work, which I was like, you know, I thought, oh my God. Um, and yeah, and so I started dishwashing and I was going to sleep in the camper van and I didn't spend one night in the camper van. And then, um, and at the end it was two week, it was a two week, week run of the pop-up restaurant. And we said to each other, right, if this student loan that I get comes in time, then I'll book a... He was off out to, he was going out to Chile to his restaurant there, and we said, right, I'll book a ticket out there. And it came the morning he was leaving, and I remember waking up, I was really hungover, and sitting on, he's got this staircase that's made out of old chairs that are all screwed together, you climb up. And I was sitting on the chairs and um, tapping away, booking the ticket to Chile. And so I left a week later, and met him in Santiago, and then we um, we travelled about a bit, and it was actually it wasn't actually that trip. It was so anyway. At this point, we're in love to set the scene. Okay. <laughs> to set the scene, and we decided to go. We bought an old van called a Panda Molde van, which is like this classic workman's van. It's very square, very small. It's like a Suzuki and tiny engine. And it's got like the crumple zone is your knees. I love the way you talk about cars, by the way. You can tell that you used to like make them with your dad. Really? <laughs> Tiny engine. See, I hate very cars. Square. I can't drive. Well, I can drive, but not officially. But yeah. You talk about it in a technical way. You do, uh, yeah. yeah. God, isn't that funny? Like, I know what a chassis, a chassis <laughs> yeah. is or uh, a clutch. Or, yeah, I know. He always used to explain that stuff to me, and I'd always be like, oh, I don't care. But then I guess it sank in. Can we put this trip somehow into the cabinet represented in some way yeah. either Santiago, like a postcard of Santiago. yeah I've got postcards, I could print out one of yeah. the images and yeah. yeah, yeah no let's do that sounds That'd quite be really good nice. yeah. um, and do you think that there's um, you seem to be part of this creative group in London, do you think there is a group of young creatives and who do you think, who are they and is, that, is there such a thing yeah, I, I, well, I definitely think that there's like a, a generation of creatives um, I think that still the creative world is relatively quite small to say how much the world's changed and stuff like I don't feel like it's so much well I feel like there's this commercial element of it and this whole sort of streetwear thing and you know like my little brother knew that Virgil's starting he's 17 and like I'm just like what the hell but you can go on Instagram and in five seconds pick up like a basic vocabulary which includes uh, high beast and I don't know what the hell it's not of any interest to me but I definitely think that the, the queer scene and the queer culture is an underlying thing that's just just about clinging in there and sadly so many of the queer spaces are closing down now do you um, think there is a physical focal point to it? no not anymore and I think that's very recent I think with the close of the Georgian Dragon and um, a number of different venues it's really changed the cultural landscape you know most of the time when I I don't know if it's also just that I've aged I'm not sure but uh, most of the time when I see people now it is at events thrown by big brands and you know and it's a much more pressured situation running Loverboy with Charles well sorry not running Loverboy with Charles Jeffrey being involved with Loverboy and I did some of the sets and you know it was such a communal um, effort that we made to make it happen and just having that space where everyone feels like it's not just they're able to but absolutely necessary that they dress up in it's like Halloween but fashionable you know like and just really going all out and just enjoying that and experiencing you know everyone else's you know beings and stuff it, it, it's 
it's really exciting. It reminded me of a juggling festival, actually. And it was like all these weirdos coming together to like, you know, make this thing out of love and and kindness and sharing this this space. And I think Lyle is Lyle who runs who owns Vogue Fabrics is should be like given an award for keeping that place going and what it provides and it's those little pockets of community you know I think in every community there's community lacking um, that keep London going and keep London having this level of you know DIY and progressiveness that really I don't believe anywhere anywhere else in terms of like Paris and New York and the obvious places I really want to find out what's going on in Delhi and Mexico City and because it's that untapped you know I really don't feel like all of those reference points and all of that culture has been really explored yet in what would you say to someone who is really young coming to London and looking for that don't scene? do it <laughs> <laughs> No. Go to Delhi instead. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I don't know. I just say to them, work as hard as you can. Don't think about money. Um, do whatever it takes to get experience and have gratitude and don't have a sense of uh, self entitlement that so many millennials do because it's really, really infuriating. I worked my ass off. I started dishwashing when I was 13 and I've worked pretty much ever since then and you know, I wouldn't have anything, and I, well, I mean, I come from a working class background, and I felt the need to do that, I don't know if I was being a bit stupid, because it seems like some people just post loads of shit on Instagram, and then make, make a quick book off it, but, you know, I don't know, anyway, I, I feel like it's informed, and given, every different experience I've had has given layers to what I do, and a love for the world around me, and a love for London, and, you know, whether I'm walking down the street, and it's like, oh, I used to live there, or I used to go to, I used to work at that restaurant, I used to, you know, it's like it, it really feels like home and London does have community and it, it can be a home. You know, it's not just such a vast, expansive, big space. Actually, most people just go, the majority of people here just commute and go home and sit on the sofa and watch TV or, I don't know, do some sort of t- scheduled activity with their wife I'm, or whatever. I'm not sure. Scheduled Five activity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you're off to the ballroom class on Thursday. <laughs> What is fern or have you heard about that latest pop-up restaurant you know they don't most people don't, oh, I don't it sounds a bit judgy but i don't feel like there's a lot of people that take part in creating uh spaces for people to celebrate and to enjoy things that that, that don't it's about spaces that don't just have a commercial purpose that's the thing that we're lacking is you know, doing things for love and joy and making, having celebration for the sake of it, you know, because even every celebration is so commercialised, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and as we draw to a close, mm-hmm. when I close the cabinet, is there anything else you want to put in? Oh, I'll probably put all sorts in there when I get a chance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, well, you can go and see it if you want to yeah, yeah. Um, have a look what, how it ends up, but yeah. Leave it, leave it, leave it hanging. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. That was really interesting. Cool. No problem. It's been really enjoyable. It's great to speak to you. Yeah. That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website. And you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.